0: Hello and welcome to episode number 249 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have guests of various intellects, research, information, everything that adds to the human capacity. On this episode, we have Dr. Azra Raza, author of The First Cell, not sure if it shows up on the video, and The Human Cost of Pursuing Cancer to the Last. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Armin.
0: This is a great thing. Now, you are a professor of medicine and director of the MDS Center at Columbia University in New York, myelodysplastic syndrome, and you have been researching that and keeping a tissue repository from there from two years before I was born, which I found to be quite interesting. The whole time of my existence, you have been building a repository of patient uh, data, which is pretty exciting. How did you get into the field of cancer treatment in the first place?
1: I was uh, born and raised in Karachi, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, but somehow right from my childhood, I was very curious about nature. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: one of the first things I got interested in was Ants. I would, as a four year old, be following them around, et cetera, and wanting to know things. And then once I could read, I started reading a lot of science early on, like evolutionary biology and um, embryology interested me particularly. Uh, And as I was growing up and going to college, I realized that even though I very much wanted to do a pure basic science PhD graduate work and do research. I realized that what attracted me was uh, the human body. I wanted to do research um, related to cancer, particularly by the time I was 18. Uh, But the only way for me to study any science at a graduate level was to go to med school. And I started medical school by thinking, okay, I'm just going to finish my medicine and proceed abroad to do my PhD in the West somewhere, especially uh, particularly interested in America, because this is the most affluent country in the world, number one, which can afford uh, scientists who want to do research. And number two, because of the meritocracy culture that exists here, that a foreigner like me could come in shit of a brown female getting up from Karachi, Pakistan, could come to America and compete for the same grants that, um, Uh, citizens of the country are competing for. And this was Mm -hmm. a very beautiful thing for me. So this is how I got interested. I was very interested in cancer research. I wanted to come and do it. But then the only way to do it was through medicine in Pakistan. And what happened to me then was once I started medical school and saw my first patient, Mm -hmm. that was it. I knew that I could never do anything else but try to do uh, research to... Decrease the sorrow and pain and anguish of patients.
0: Mm -hmm. How detailed is the memory of that first patient that you had?
1: Very detailed, actually, surprisingly, because and it was a patient woman who presented with anemia and ended up having a myeloid disease, which I ended up studying.
0: It could have been anyone. Imagine if it was a different one, that could have been a different trajectory.
1: Although I knew I wanted to study liquid cancers rather than solid tumors just because of the ease of studying them. You can just go and draw blood and you have leukemia cells. Whereas if you have a lung cancer or pancreatic cancer you want to study, you take it out once and that's it.
0: Right. A completely separate category there. That's pretty cool. And then so that led into how, how soon after you started, by the way, connected to, to that initial patient, did you start collecting a repository? of tissues from, which now has more than 50,000 samples from patients in this, with this condition. How soon after that did you start that?
1: I landed in America right after graduating from med school in 1977. And before I could even do my residency, there there was a six month gap. I landed in January. My residency wasn't going to start till July 1st, but I was not someone who could sit at home and twiddle my thumbs. So I basically started uh, begging everyone to allow me to to do something. And my sister who was at Roswell Park Cancer Institute, uh, she had been through um, their pediatric oncology wards, asked her boss, her chief, uh, whether her younger sister could also come and work there. And he told her, if she's half as good as you, she can come. And that's how I started. Uh, Six months before I started my residency, I started working at Roswell Park. So from 1977 onwards, I was already studying acute myeloid leukemia and treating patients. But at that time, I was learning the science part, learning how to do various uh, technologies, uh, becoming at home with them. Did my residency fellowship, came back to Roswell Park Cancer Institute as a full-time person in Buffalo, New York. And I started studying acute myeloid leukemia most seriously by 1980. By 1984, it was clear to me that this disease is so complicated, acute myeloid leukemia. In my lifetime, we will not be able to find a cure. And so that's when I decided the best way to do, deal with this situation is try to catch it early and intercept before it becomes this end-stage monstrosity, which is completely uncontrollable. And so there are patients who have a period of, a, of what we call pre-leukemic syndrome. They're called myelodysplastic syndromes, And that's where I focused my attention in 1984 on studying the pre-leukemia and follow these patients through the natural history of the disease as they develop acute myeloid leukemia. So from 1977 when I landed here to 1984 when I first started to save samples of my patients. Why? Because had I gone to school in this country at that point I would have tried to make a mouse model but I was a sort of innocent um, immigrant who uh, didn't know any better, who trusted, I trusted my intuition and instinct rather than go by tradition and custom. And my instinct was, if I'm going to study this disease, I should save the cells from patients.
0: Mm -hmm. One thing, just to cut in there, you mentioned mouse models. In part of the book, you said how they're not useful for studying cancer treatment, but they've been done because... There's so much investment for a long time in mouse models and it's been thought to be useful. Uh, How unuseful are they for cancer treatment? And are there other things like mouse research that are currently done that are not useful in 2020 but are just lagging from things like in 1995?
1: I want to start by answering uh, answering this question by first saying that I'm very touched that you began by asking me about my tissue repository. Nobody takes an interest in it, and although I think that it is my most uh, important contribution, if it's mm-hmm. going to be is this collection of um, of tissue. Uh, and secondly, I'm also very impressed that uh, you have made that distinction when you asked me the question about utility of mouse models between their uh, usefulness uh, uh, as drug development models versus as studying pure biology. Mm-hmm. And the answer is that, of course, uh, and all animal models are extremely important for studying um, basic phenomena, how genes act, mechanisms of... Uh, of action of drugs, etc., But they're not very good in one area, which is we cannot create an artificial tumor in an animal by killing its own immune system and then treating it with some drugs in the animal and seeing the response and then having any confidence that this same exact scenario can now be transported and extrapolated to humans. That's where they're useless.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now I got to go back to that uh, tissue repository. The the main thing that came to my mind is what what value has it brought to you along the way and to today to have the repository and are there other fields where similar repositories are being collected where it's valuable as well?
1: Thank you. Uh, Answer to this question is that uh, look, What's, what are, how are we trying to treat cancer? We have constantly been trying to treat cancer by understanding the, under, the underlying biology that is driving the malignant phenotype. And uh, to study that, we have used uh, mainly mouse models. And uh, to treat that, we have again used animal models. Uh, it's not like we haven't tried to study human samples with very difficult technologies were evolving. And eventually we did have the whole entire human genome sequence. That was about 20 years ago. And since then, we have sequenced, uh, large groups have sequenced a number of uh, uh, of tumors. But so far, none have resulted really in any dramatic development of uh, new therapies, because we are still depending upon using the surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, what I lovingly call this. <laughs> um, and that's, so where are, after hundreds of billions of dollars, where are all the new drugs that were promised? And when you ask me, what is the utility of the tissue repository, I want to point to you this uh, a paper that was published in Nature, along with, this is the editorial, and they were accompanying this were six major scientific publications. What did they show? Um, You know, Armin, the way we have looked at uh, the genome of tumors is that we go in and sequence all the the. uh, the dna that constitutes the genes but that dna only makes up 2% of the whole dna so 98% of the dna we never sequence we only sequence the genes mm-hmm. the, ex- the exons which together is called the exome so we are mostly performing exome, exome sequencing right for the first time, Intron- and time 750 institutions across the world uh from four continents, studied 2,600 tumor samples from 38 different cancers for whole genome sequencing. That is 100% of their DNA has been sequenced. This is a tremendous effort costing I'm sure billions of dollars across four continents and must have taken at least 10 years to do it their conclusion after all this is they found very important things, for example, 95% of cancers ended up showing s- mutations in their, uh, somewhere in the genes. Number two, there were four to five what we call driver mutations, which are driving the, the main malignant um, phenotype. Um, but most important, their conclusion is here. The future of cancer genomics lies in the clinic. Why do they say this future? Because when they sequence these 2,600 samples from 750 institutions, they have 2,600 samples of tumors from 38 cancers and zero clinical data. Compare this now to my tissue repository where I have thousands of patients from the same disease, not 38 cancers, same disease, thousands of samples, with every bit of clinical, morphologic, pathologic, genetic, all kinds of information available on them. Patients studied serially. So let's say I have 5,000 unique patients. Not a single cell has come from a different uh, physician or oncologist. I have taken care of every one of these patients. Most of these bone marrows I have performed on my own. Uh, Myself, I still do them. Yesterday, um, I did several bone marrows in my clinic, gone to the tissue repository. So think about the fact that all these institutions together could produce 2,600 samples from 38 cancers, and I have a tissue repository which is so unique that it really holds potentially... The uh, ability to shift the entire paradigm if it is studied properly by using the latest technology of genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics, and not just any one thing. If we apply all this seriously, study these samples seriously, we will have incredible answers.
0: I like this concept. When I think of what you're describing there, the 50,000 samples were more with your temporal understanding of it and it's in the clinic that's depth and then I've noticed in life you can take anything of high depth and then transfer it across width whereas when some things have a lot of width and they're lightly touching many different things like the example you're providing it can't translate for you can only translate as far as the depth of something goes which you're describing of your repository what is one way you would like it to be used
1: So the exciting thing right now is that um, there is a a partner of mine who has agreed um, to uh, a huge sequencing company who have agreed to go ahead and do whole genome sequencing for the entire tissue repository. So imagine how exciting that is. But I, I am still committed that no single thing is going to help find the first cell or the earliest marker of cancer. What we need to do is along with this whole genomic approach, I hope somebody else comes and says, Dr. Raza, we are ready to do all the proteomics with you from the blood and serum and bone marrow plasma and let's do it and let's find what signature of various proteins uh, means the patient will die within a year with pre-leukemia or will live for 10 years with pre-leukemia. And this is how we work our way back and say, okay, why did some patients even get preleukemia? What was predisposing them? And then we recognize what puts people at high risk. Is there some genetic thing they are born with? Is there something they were exposed to? Are there uh, messenger RNAs being produced that are making them susceptible? So ideally what I want to do now is find partners um, who want to invest and do this because they will make billions of dollars out of this. I work for Columbia University. Everything belongs to Columbia University, but they can come help with the research, do the transcriptomics, just like someone is doing genomics with me. If other people want to do these things, then I am very confident that within two years we will have biomarkers that can pick very early signs of this.
0: You've done the base work underneath, and then if someone comes along and does the processing. Yeah.
1: Uh, and a lot of it has to be uh, applying, you know, this, this will generate really big data, which needs analysis by not just humans, bioinformatic experts, but also uh, machine learning through AI. We have to apply all the latest technology. And this is why. I believe my choice of coming to the US was the best decision I made 50 years ago because hey, no one has better technology, no one has better trained individuals, more creative, in number at least, than, than our country. And this is why I think I am in the best place at the right time, the technology is there, Many people ask me, Dr. Azza, why should we support your research and not give money to American Cancer Society? My answer is, where is the tissue of American Cancer Society? I am the only one who has the samples. No one else can say that.
0: I'm 100% with this concept. I've talked about this in different categories. When you're the person who is it, who is touching reality in that category more than anybody, let's say, that's it. There's no greater source. Everybody else is secondhand compared to that. Yeah, I put a lot of value on what you're describing there. When you're the, you're the source, if you're, if you're the person who talks to 10,000 people in public on a regular basis, you know that city better than other people in that area.
1: You know, Armin, I have actually three bits of credentials. Number one is that I am an oncologist who sees 30 to 40 cancer patients every week since uh, the last 40 years I've been doing this. So um, it's not as if I don't understand the anguish that patients are going through. What is driving me is just that anguish. The whole book I wrote is to bring the patient back front and center into these kinds of conversations that we have to stop. At least as far as cancer is concerned, we have to, everything we do to study Any kind of aspect of cancer should be directed towards reducing the suffering and pain of patients. Knowledge for knowledge's sake is great, but here we have a serious issue about patients. So number one, I'm an oncologist. Number two, I have had a well-funded basic research lab all these years. I have some of the smartest scientists working with me. And we have, uh, we publish constantly in the highest profile journals, but is that what I really need? Another paper in Nature or New England Journal of Medicine, for God's sake, no, I have hundreds of papers and publications all over. I'm not trying to be modest, but just trying to bring this back to reality that what matters is not yet another publication, but rather, why am I still treating my acute leukemia patients with the same two drugs combination called seven and three, seven days of one, three days of another today in 2020 that I was using in 1977. So that's the second thing. I'm an oncologist. I'm a researcher. And my third um, at, uh, third distinction rather is that I'm a cancer widow. Yeah. So I have experienced this surge from both sides of the bed, as a caregiver, and as somebody who is treating the disease.
0: Right. A lot of passion has been imparted on you and then through you on what you have done for multiple decades. What is the biggest pushback you have towards this goal? Is it finding the right people? Is it the societal or uh, medical field response? What's the biggest pushback? I
1: have to say that I've not experienced any pushback as such. But mm-hmm. the culture is, uh, has evolved in our uh, field, which has, uh, as you know, this uh, kind of spiraling down effect where they keep becoming more and more reductionist. So if you think about what causes cancer, it's something hereditary, it's something in the environment. Is it a pathogen, some kind of infectious organ? Uh, 90% of the time, almost, it's idiopathic. We have no idea what it's about. Uh, but if, uh, if uh, scientists combine all of these things, um, all these causes, they bring it to the reductionist level where they say, look, Whatever the cause, whether it's environment or a pathogen or a familial cancer, in the end, something is wrong with the genes that are inside the cell and are malfunctioning and forcing the cell to misbehave. So let's look at the genes. Then the question came up, is it one gene that's wrong? Wow, that would be great. One gene, one cancer, one magic bullet, cure, boom or is it many genes so we studied genes and we found that for a couple of cancers indeed it was one gene uh, chronic myelocytic leukemia acute promyelocytic uh, leukemia and these two diseases are now cured they were deadly when i was in training and today they are curable with just pills and so yes that worked but unfortunately for all other cancers it turned out that there were hundreds of genes that are mutated and now this uh, this particular study shows at least four to five driver genes in every cancer. So should we now try to make a map of these? And so scientists have been prog- proceeding very methodically doing all these things over the last four decades and we have made tremendous advances. They have made tremendous advances Um, So I haven't felt any particular pushback, but I feel like too much focus by basic scientists on a reductionist approach, which despite now two decades of experience showing, especially since the human genome has been sequenced, that it's not as simple as we imagined it to be. And so my biggest problem is that people are not taking the blinders off their eyes to see we are trying to solve too complicated a problem. Yes, we may be able to figure out every signaling pathway in every gene that's affected in every cancer, but that will take another thousand years. And we don't have time to wait for that. So I'm saying that let's see the problem for what it is. It is very complicated and it's a moving target. Why do I say that? Because as one cancer divides into two, uh, one cancer cell divides into two, it picks up new mutations because of just DNA copying errors. With each subsequent generation, there are two new cancers now, then four new cancers within the same tumor. And these studies show exactly that huge heterogeneity from patient to patient, cancer to cancer, clone to clone within the same tumor. So this kind of a complicated problem cannot be solved by a reductionist approach. The only way, the only thing which works is all the treatments we use, if we use them early enough, they work. Like if stage one, if cancer is diagnosed at stage one, let's say breast cancer, 100% cure, but if it's diagnosed stage four, 10% cure, the same treatment. So what I'm saying is if we go before one's stage one, even we'll be, um, we will not be visiting these draconian measures on our patients of beating them on the head with chemotherapy or slashing their bodies off.
0: Mm-hmm. I've noticed this about the reductionist approach it can be taken too far. I kind of do things in a reductionist way, but if you go too far, now you just, you've just you exited the field that you're looking at. You can reduce things down to an atom, down to, a, down to the sun or entropy or something far away from humans, but it doesn't always assist. And connecting back, actually, if the average person looks at the first cell, do they think to themselves that cancer starts from one single cell that went awry? Is that the way for them to think about it? that is it start from yes, with one exactly. cell? Exactly. Yeah.
1: In a way, Armin, even I'm using a very reductionist approach, going down to the very first cell and its footprint, so that's reductionist yeah. too. But uh, to me, that's a more realistic reductionist approach rather than, and I may turn out to be wrong, but I know that the only strategy that has shown to work is early detection. I'm trying to imagine a future Uh, where we can cure cancer without having all these, uh, these chemo and radiation therapies and surgical approaches because they're not easy to tolerate. Yes, we can cure acute myeloid leukemia, the deadly disease I've been studying with a bone marrow transplant, but you know how draconian that is for patients. Those who, I mean, half of them don't even survive it. There's 50% survival with acute myeloid leukemia, with transplant even. So I'm saying, okay, right now, this is all we can do. If I have acute myeloid leukemia today, I will take all of those things that I'm criticizing right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to imagine a better future for future patients. And where will that be? That begins exactly with what you said. Cancer starts with one cell. Why don't we go back to that one cell and even try to go before that and see what are the disease perturbations, uh, disease-related perturbations or what generic or environmental influences make people develop even that first cell? And can we try to just prevent it or catch it so early that we don't need all these aggressive treatments?
0: Mm -hmm. I, I always relate things back to life and most things in life, the first time it shows up, you can calmly handle it. Second time, calmly. At a certain point, you can't calmly handle it or it affected your body or your routine. And now you have to like deal with two things. Then, three, and then at some point it's out of your hands and some people just accept it. Or One thing that comes to mind also, you brought this up in the book, punctuated equilibrium from Stephen J. Gold. I always think about life like that. There's thing, and then suddenly a change and then you adapt to the change. How much is punctuated equilibrium a part of how cancer develops?
1: That's a good way of thinking of it, actually. You're right. Because uh, we are very much uh, uh, suffer from the herd instinct, which means that something becomes popular, everybody and their grandmother is me too, me too, me too. We'll all try to do the same thing. So let's say in the 80s, it was oncogenes. Everyone was studying oncogenes. Then in the 90s, it's more like uh, angiogenesis, new blood vessel formation. Everyone's trying to choke off blood supply to tumors and uh, and starve them to death. Then in the 2000s, it's all about genomics because we have the human genome sequenced. So we go in these, uh, then there's a period of like uh, uh, equilibrium where everyone is trying to make... Uh, Uh, new observations and develop insights and then suddenly boom somebody finds something new like genome uh, is sequenced so suddenly everyone will turn and then the paradigm will shift to that so you're very very right things move in this kind of punctuated equilibrium and that's the nature of things but it's not necessarily a bad thing because that's how paradigms shift
0: yeah it's always like smooth, smooth, a lot of progression, like expansion period and then consolidation. So like new thing, expansion, all this effort towards it, and then it's consolidated and then the next thing, boom. And then that's our way of kind of progressing. I look at things a little bit like that. Uh, For the average person today that has, the average person that gets, they have a cancer diagnosis, what is their likelihood of treatment? Just the generic right in the middle, average person is found to have cancer. What's their chances today?
1: I would say chances are excellent. Mm -hmm. We are curing practically two thirds of the cancers right now that will be diagnosed today, this year, two thirds will be cured. And that is something unbelievably good. Um, two thirds are being cured. Number one, um, this means that mortality from cancer has gone down, 26% in the last three decades. Why? Not because of any new treatments, but because of anti-smoking campaigns that finally began to show some results. And two, because we are diagnosing cancers earlier and earlier through a number of screening measures, patient education and awareness, et cetera. So it's all early detection and anti-smoking campaign. Now there is some talk about immune therapies contributing to a few cancers whose uh, survival is improved. But for an average person, I think that two thirds uh, will be cured today. But with what? That's not very pleasant, as I say, the same old thing. The one third that present with advanced cancer, their outcome is no better than it was 50 years ago. And that is shameful, that is an embarrassment to us. Secondly, I would say that, let's say breast cancer, women with breast cancer, 40% are diagnosed with advanced stage disease. That accounts for practically 50,000 women dying every year. That is a lot of women. That shouldn't be dying. Why are we missing cancers on these people? Maybe they developed it at a very young age where we didn't ex- even need think about doing mammograms on them, or mammograms missed it. They're not the best technique, technology to detect early cancer. A lot of people point this out to me and say, "Well, we have tried screening measures. PSA led to many overdiagnosed, overtreated." Uh, Men and uh, mammograms missed a lot of aggressive tumors and um, many women lost their breasts because uh, even non-aggressive tumors were removed. So this kind of criticism is very short-sighted. Basically, you are criticizing the whole concept of early detection, which is the only thing that works because we have bad methodology or bad tests. I'm saying we should develop, uh, the, use the latest imaging and scanning and AI technology combined with the tech- biomarker detection by all the panomics I described and not use any one test but use 50 tests if we have to to develop early detection markers. So for the, somebody who has cancer today, I'm saying that you have 70% chance that it will be early and you will be cured, but one third chance that you will not be. And so while we need to keep investing resources in developing better therapies for patients who have cancer today, we should try to do better for future and divert some of the resources which are being redundantly wasted on the me too mentality we should move them towards early detection. And I think what I want to uh, uh, say at the end of this uh, section is to say to you, I feel extremely optimistic about the future because I do believe capitalism works and that if we just set a new goal and financially incentivize that goal, everyone will be rushing towards it.
0: Is it true? One thing that came to mind while you were describing that, an analog of that is the same thing that, it's not related, but let's say, like advertising on a social media platform. Some people might post an advertisement and say, it doesn't work, but it does work for some people if it's good ads and they try 50 different things and they do split testing. So same thing in this category. Is it in spite of or because of? So like the early detection definitely is the benefit there. So each element has to be looked at as a positive or a negative and then you can't discount the positive because the way it was implemented wasn't valid that's just exactly. missing the concept one yes. thing also you added there it was in i believe the chapter with lady n but you said no patient has one cancer so even though they have cancer that starts why do they not have one cancer what kind of adaptation can occur
1: this is what I was talking about earlier that ca- cancer is a continuously evolving entity. Mm-hmm. Every time a cell divides into two, imagine right. that normally the cell might uh, be taking one week to divide into two, but right. once it has uh, escaped all the growth controlling signals, it is dividing in 24 hours instead of seven days. Right. So this rapid, uh, proliferation also leads to the DNA polymerase making lots of errors so that DNA errors also increase uh, during the copying mechanism. So once a cancer cell divides into two, it can pick up a number of new mutations. And those new mutations may not affect how rapidly it's dividing, but they could affect metabolism of the drug we are giving. So -hmm. let's say I'm giving one drug which the first cell was very sensitive to, but the second cell is not because of the new mutation. And that's how these, uh, within the same tumor, now there are two or three or a thousand different clones sitting there, biding their time and being resistant to the drugs we are giving. And once uh, they have had a chance to to outgrow the dominant population, then they cause the relapse. This is why it's so hard. Mm -hmm.
0: Continuously changing. They're basically doing what, We or any organisms do over time. We're always adapting to the scenario. They're just doing it with quick replication. And then it's tough to keep up with very quickly. And
1: the sad thing is that the first person to describe this is Peter Knoll, who wrote wrote this paper in 1976, which I reviewed for uh, the laboratory at Roswell Park Cancer Institute back then. Uh, as a young person. And it made such a huge impression on me because so I quoted the whole thing in verbatim in my book, uh, the abstract from the paper, because there was great clairvoyance in Peter Nowell's voice. He predicted all of this, which has been proved by genetic sequencing now. He already predicted the clonal evolution.
0: One other thing that comes to mind right when you said that is in 1976, also my favorite book came out, the selfish gene, and you met Richard Dawkins. Yes. Did he have a big impact on your view of cancer or how it evolves quickly?
1: No, not Richard Dawkins.
0: I believe it was described in there. Hmm. Have you met No, him? I
1: mean I know Richard Dawkins, and I love his work, and he has—he's uh, a, a fantastic scientist. But I'm saying he did not uh, affect my thinking about cancer as oh, much. Oh, I see evolutionary biologist did. I love the selfish gene also. I have every one of uh, Richard Dawkins's book, signed copies. And I, I think he's one of the most important intellectuals of our time.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I have the greatest respect, admiration and affection for him.
0: Wonderful individual. He's like our Charles Darwin of today. In a way. Yes. Now also another notable individual. I always like to check other people that you have worked with that uh, provided some interesting... Uh, value or understanding? You mentioned Siddhartha Mukherjee in the book, and actually he's on the cover of the book. I didn't even notice that until right now, but I noticed he was in the book. Uh, you have worked with him. Uh, what have you learned from him and or specific others that come to mind in your field?
1: Siddharth Mukherjee and I actually share a lab. We work together mm-hmm. and he is uh, someone whose uh, intellect and whose writing abilities, whose uh, creative spirit, I uh, greatly admire. In fact, in my opinion, he is the best science writer ever, sorry. Uh, to right. do oh, <laughs> I think Sid Mukherjee is um, a phenomenon that burst onto the stage at a young age, uh, 10, 11 years ago now, and uh, has Reach the stratosphere of fame as he should have because of his thoughtful and uh, extremely intelligent analysis of uh, the cancer paradigm. No one can write like him, no one has a grasp of history like him, and no one can can put together and synthesize a story like he does. So what I have learned from Sid in terms of uh, science is Uh, Many people just take him as a historian, but let me tell you, he's one of the most original thinkers we have in cancer today. And he is coming up with new cell therapies that are totally dramatic. Um, But one of the things he showed earlier on is that um, if you tinker with the microenvironment in which the cells are growing, you just change, let's say you delete a gene from, of interest from the microenvironment cells. And, and then the cells which are living in that microenvironment change their behavior and can become malignant and develop a leukemia phenotype. So talk is cheap. A lot of us had been saying that the seed is affected by the soil, but Siddharth Mukherjee is one of the first people to actually show that very clearly uh, by deleting a gene and showing Mm. So what I've learned from Sid is so many things, not just learned, but I continuously learn from him because we are in touch every day, of course,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as we work together.
0: He did a good job of making the title of his book, The Emperor of All Maladies. It makes it like a, like a battle and there's like a hierarchy and this is the one, which it is actually, but it translates to a larger demographic that think of things in that way versus just looking at some sort of chart. Yeah. A,
1: and you know, he is a big supporter of my thinking, my ideas, uh, the big, the first cell, He's a big supporter of the book. And in fact, the first uh, uh, official function that I had for the book reading uh, back in October of last year, one of the first things that Mukherjee was said was, so Azra, you've written a book saying the emperor has no clothes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, true. Uh,
1: somebody else has called me the whistleblower of cancer. Also, mm-hmm.
0: there has to be somebody, the pioneer that goes over the hill and they, uh, they get cowboy, runs over the hill and they get arrow shot at them. But somebody's got to be in front, try taking a risk. I value it a lot. Taking a risk is very valuable. One thing I always like to add in closing is how would you describe a message? you would like to let all people know about cancer or your research, uh, a couple of sentences that might describe your view of what you would want them to know.
1: First, I want everybody to know that the future is looking very, very bright because of hundreds of thousands of researchers devoting their lives to study this disease and to uh, be dedicated to, at all costs, improving the outcome for patients. So, that's something that's very helpful. Second, the technology that we have developed is unbelievable. We're just waiting now to apply that technology, and that will give us the tipping point where all will suddenly um, be light. And uh, so those are my very important messages. But the most important message I want to leave everybody with is that somehow an illusion has been created in the public that great and fantastic and magical things have happened in cancer treatment and that it's advanced so much. And I want the public to be educated, to be aware of the reality, which is that No new drugs basically have shifted the paradigm except for very rare cancers for a few thousand patients out of the 1.7 million who will be diagnosed in a year. And that I don't think is shifting the paradigm. I think for the vast majority of patients, we are still using the chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and surgery. And I think the fear that patients feel is real because if they're diagnosed with cancer, either it's a death sentence or it's horrible torture for many, many months to come, neither is a very attractive option to take. So I think that public has to become aware of what it is when they read headlines like fantastic new immune treatment curing uh, pancreatic cancer. They must read the fine print which says in mice.
0: Right. The details are very relevant. It has to be connected to us or it's just a headline or some sort of sensational story. Wonderful to have had you on this episode number 249 of the Armin Show and all the information you have brought to us.
1: Thank you for having me, Armin. Can I end with a a short poem for you?
0: Yes, that would be great. This is what we've been wanting. (laughs) I would like to hear it.
1: Surgeons must be careful when they test their knife. Underneath their fine incisions rests the culprit, knife.
0: There's gold right there. And we will close on this wonderful poem that tells us what a clear message. Glad to have had you on.
1: Thank you very much for having me.